Please join me in prayer. Psalm 30 tells us, Sing praises to the Lord, O you His saints. Give thanks to His holy name. For His anger is for a moment, and His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do sing praises to Your name. We give thanks to You this morning, for You're worthy of all praise. Though there is indeed weeping in the lives of your faithful, you provide relief, you provide rest, and you provide joy in your perfect timing. Our words and our actions may fail us, but you never will. As we gather this morning, our hearts are so deeply heavy for our brothers and our sisters at the Covenant School and Covenant Presbyterian Church in Nashville, in particular the families of Evelyn Dykhouse, Mike Hill, William Kinney, Catherine Kuntz, Cynthia Peak, and Hallie Scruggs. We pray that these families are comforted knowing that you are a God in whom they can take refuge. O oh, send your light and your truth, O oh Lord. Let them lead and comfort these families. We know that you maintain the cause of the afflicted and you execute justice for the needy. Likewise, Father, we pray for the pastors, elders, teachers, and other caregivers as they, as they minister at Covenant Press Nashville and the Covenant School. We pray that they would minister effectively with wisdom and with courage, with compassion and empathy. Send your spirit to guide them. Father, we plead for your mercy. We plead for your grace to be poured out on these families, this church the school in the city of Nashville. Oh Christ, have mercy. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and heal our broken hearts. Make all sad things become untrue. Father, our hearts are also heavy and with Carrie and Daniel Taylor and the loss of Carrie's grandmother, Nelda Delatore. Send your presence and your peace to be with this family. We give you praise, King Jesus, for our, the many ministry partners that you allow our body to partner with to see your kingdom reach near and far. In particular, this morning, we lift up to you Maggie Alden and Sean Walsh with RUF Samford. We pray your blessing upon their ministry and pray that they would care for the young people that are in their midst and that they would bring your peace and truth to the campus of Samford University. Almighty and eternal God, in your tender love towards humanity, you sent your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, to take on himself our flesh and to suffer death on the cross. Grant that we may follow the example of his patience and humility and also may be made partakers of his resurrection through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Well, good morning, beloved of God. It's awesome, a joy to be with you and to be able to preach and open God's Word together. We, um, we didn't need any more evidence to know that all is not right in the world, but we did get more of it this week. 
And you may have noticed that in our order of worship, we've oscillated a bit more than usual between joyful praise and profound lament and grief, because we recognize that that is the reality for the people of God. It is also the reality for all humans, but for particularly those who belong to the Lord, we live lives in this tension where we oscillate between joy and sorrow between praise and lament, between suffering and glory. And so we were all, in various ways, reminded this week that we need something outside of ourselves. We need someone. We need one who has the authority and the power to make all that is not right in the world right, to make all the sad things come untrue. And we need one who is humble enough and willing to ride right at suffering and to not shy away from it and to do what's required even unto death. And so Mark, in this passage, in a very familiar passage to us, he presents to us such a one. He presents to us the King, Jesus in his authority and also in his humility. He's the humble yet authoritative king. So I want to invite you to come and behold an object worth our beholding together. And before we do so, let's, let's pray. Almighty God, we come before you now and we're attending to your word. And Lord, we're aware, many of us, just how broken and weary we are. And how much we need the the soothing balm of your word. We've heard your summons and we've come into your presence. Holy Spirit, would you minister to our hearts today? Remind us again of the beauty of King Jesus. Help us to see him clearly and to delight in him and to find rest in him. And we pray this in his name. Amen. So join me as we read in Mark 11, starting in verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing? Untying the colt. And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. 
And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And when he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. All flesh is like grass and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. So we've been made very much aware of the kind of king that we need. We need a king who is humble enough and willing to do what it takes even unto death. We also need a king who has all authority, who can make all the sad things come untrue and who can bring life where death reigns. And so that's the story that Mark is presenting to us here in this passage that's very familiar to us. But also, this is a brand new turn in Mark's gospel. You've been with us for a while as we've been studying this book. And all throughout the early part of Mark, really the first half of the whole book, Mark has been kind of tampering down, and Jesus really has been tampering down the conversation around who he is. There's this question that reverberates through the whole gospel. Who then is this? The disciples say that very phrase, who then is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? And as Jesus the king starts ushering in the grace and the shalom of the kingdom, he, he hushes down the conversation about his true identity. It's been a mystery, really, up until this point. Who is Jesus and what has he come to do? And then there's a turn in chapter 8. He asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And the disciples, well, Peter, on behalf of the disciples, as he's wont to do, says, you're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. You are the Christ, the King. And Jesus, from then on, sets his face towards Jerusalem. On the way is kind of Mark's key phrase that there's a turn. And now Jesus with the disciples are on the way to Jerusalem. And he is the King, but he's trying to reframe and reorient how they understand what's happening. And as they come to this moment, as he's drawing near to the city of the king, to Jerusalem, it's like the whole story of the whole Bible of the true king is crashing in on the person of Jesus. The whole entire Old Testament is coming and there's an explosion of fulfillment happening in this moment. And all of it is flashing the lights and signaling Yahweh the king is here. So I want you to see this with me. This whole story is crashing in together on Jesus. What has been a mystery is no longer a mystery. And so Jesus with his disciples are drawing near to Jerusalem. And you remember just before this passage, 
blind Bartimaeus who could see nothing and couldn't see Jesus hears that he's coming and he shouts out, son of David, son of David, have mercy on me. And anyone who hears the phrase son of David would immediately know he's, he's talking about the heir to the throne, the true king. Jesus, the son of David is coming. And then Mark also gives you little details in this narrative that are quite frankly, not necessary. But he gives them because he's wanting our minds to go to the Old Testament so that we can see who this king really is. And so Jesus is coming to Jerusalem and he's at Bethpage and Bethany. And then he gives you this little phrase, at the Mount of Olives. Again, it's unnecessary. So why would he put it there? Well, in Zechariah 14, one of the minor prophets, we read that suddenly Yahweh is going to come and he's going to plant his feet on the Mount of Olives as he begins to usher in the grace and glory of his kingdom. Jesus is coming and he's at the Mount of Olives planting his feet firmly because something is happening. He's ushering in something miraculous and something glorious in his kingdom. And as they go in to this this area, he sends disciples to the village because there, they're going to find a donkey. There's a donkey that's been tied up and no one's ever sat on it. Now again, in the frame of the story, we don't need these kinds of details that it's tied and that it's by the door. We don't need these things. And so he's pointing us because when you see a donkey tied, your mind goes... To Genesis 49, Jacob with his sons, as they're about to enter into the land of Egypt, this beautiful land of plenty, he's blessing his sons and he blesses Judah, the tribe of Judah from whom the kings will come. And he says, the scepter will never depart from your hand. You will bind your colt, your donkey to the choicest of vines because you are the king who brings peace. There will be no one who can take it from you. And so they untied that colt and they brought it to Jesus and they threw their cloaks on it because it had never been ridden before. It was born for one job. God and from the foundations of the world designed donkeys and he made this particular donkey so that the king of glory could sit on it. And so they put their cloaks on the donkey and Jesus sits on it. And in this picture of Jesus sitting on the donkey, we're to see Solomon in 1 Kings who rides David's very mule into the city because he's being enthroned as the true king. We're meant to see Zechariah 9. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. And as the the children and the people who are there start throwing leafy branches. I love that phrase in the Greek. Leafy branches and their cloaks on the road were to see the King Jehu in Second Kings and the Psalm of David, Psalm 118, as the king processes into his city. All of these things are shouting, the royal king is here. Great David's greater son has arrived. Yahweh himself has come to make all things new. And the people rightly start shouting, Hosanna. They're quoting Psalm 118. Save us, O Yahweh. Blessed is the coming of the kingdom. Because in their mind's eye, they think they know what's about to happen. They think that they're seeing a 
the power and the might and the victory of an all-powerful king coming to eradicate all the oppressive Roman forces, to get rid of all that is wrong in the city and in the land, to rid all the nasty nations out of here, to purify it, and to bring the fullness of the kingdom, to bring this awesome, physical, powerful kingdom to bear. And I wonder sometimes if that's the kind of king that we want to. I wonder if in our day and in our lives, we like power and might and anything that opposes us, we want it to be smitten. We want it to be shattered and broken just like those in the first century who were waiting on the Messiah. We want a king who's powerful, who will rule. And I want you to see how Mark, through Jesus, wants to reorient and reframe how we understand what true kingship really is. I want you to look at the scene again. I want you to look at it intently with me as we see how Mark and Jesus reorient us. Behold the true king. He's riding on a donkey. Now, in the ancient world, when a king is mounting and getting ready for a big war to wage war on the evil enemy, you would not have him ride on a donkey. You would have him on a war horse because he's mustering the troops. He's getting ready to wage war. A donkey is a sign of peacetime. So Jesus, mounted humbly on a donkey, is coming in as the peace-bringing king. But how is that? As he's riding toward all the oppression and suffering that awaits him, how is it that he's bringing peace? Well, the answer is because he's waging a completely different kind of war. As he's humbly mounted on this donkey, he's waging a war where meekness defeats power. Where suffering defeats evil and where death actually brings true life. See, often in this text, we start to look at Jesus from the front as if he's coming at us. And so you see the branches and the, the cloak spread on the ground and Jesus on the donkey and all the shouts going around him. And it's a pretty glorious picture. You, you're standing here and you're looking at him coming and you're like, here he is. This is the glory we've been waiting for. What Mark wants to do is he wants to reorient your perspective. So I invite you to actually come and stand behind Jesus. Remember, they're, they're spreading their cloaks, and you can see it in the passage in verse 8. Many spread their cloaks on the road. That's, again, Mark's little phrase, on the way. The way to Jerusalem. This has been his way of saying where we're going is not a good thing. It's not a good place. So I want you to come and stand behind Jesus and look at where he's going. He has been out in front of his disciples since the turn in chapter 8 towards Jerusalem. They've been in Galilee. They've been on the way. And Jesus says, my way is the way of suffering unto death, even death on a cross. But it ends in resurrection. So we're invited to stand behind him and instead see Jesus on the donkey, the peace-bringing king, riding into the city on a hill. The city that was meant to be a light for the nations and the city that was meant to be the mountain to which God would gather up all the people so that they might worship him. And instead, the city on a hill has become the city of darkness and death. It's become the city where the righteous will suffer. 
And so in order to see Jesus as he truly is, we need to see the humble king as he rides right toward suffering and death. And friends, that's the kind of king that we need. We who are weary, who are thinking about brothers and sisters, not only in Nashville, but in other parts of the world who are enduring all kinds of evil and wickedness. We're weary and we're grieved for them. And so we need a king who's willing to ride at suffering and to do whatever it takes. He does not shy away from our suffering and grief and lament, but he rides right at it because he is the man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. We need the humble king who's willing to do whatever it takes, even unto death. And so then we come to this little transition where he comes into the city and he goes right into the temple. Again, Mark is doing this Old Testament explosion thing. And so, again, why, why is he going to the temple? Uh, there are a lot of kids in here, I think. And, and many of you read books. You guys remember books? Okay. When you read about kings in books... Where do the kings go when they come into their city most often? Where do they go? To the castle, to the palace. Yes, to the palace. When kings come into their city, they go into their glorious residence where all the pomp and prestige are. Well, King Jesus is different. But he does go to his house. He goes into the temple. The temple, the place where God's dwelling was. He goes into the temple because he needs to assess the situation. And Mark points our minds back into Malachi, into the prophets, because there in chapter 3, he said Yahweh would suddenly come. And when he does, he's going to go where? Into his temple. And the very next lines are, who can endure his coming? And so with that phrase and Jesus entering the temple, Mark is helping us see the tension that's building. And so he goes out because it was already late. And so then we move on to the second thing, the next thing, and the the last thing that we'll see in this passage. Jesus is the humble king who's willing to ride towards suffering, but Jesus is also the authoritative king who brings life to the nations. We need a king who's humble and who will suffer. But we also need a king who has the authority to make all things new. And that's who we have in Jesus. So Mark loves to do this thing where he he breaks two stories apart. He breaks one apart and then puts another story in the middle, creating a sandwich. uh, A Markin sandwich, if you will. And so we have one of these right here. Now, I... I have four boys and one of them who will remain nameless. Um, it's not Bridger, Holden, or Kuiper. Um, loves sandwiches. But in particular, he loves jelly sandwiches. So we, we will be like, do you want a turkey sandwich? You know, some good protein or something, and it'll help you sleep. And he's like, no, 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 no. I want jelly. I want a jelly sandwich. And we're like, okay, how about a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? Because, you know, again, protein. We're thinking healthy, right? And he's like, nope, no, 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 just jelly. And the way in which this child who shall remain nameless, not Bridger, Holden, or Kuiper, loves to eat sandwiches that are filled with jelly is he takes them and he spreads apart the bread and then he just 
licks the jelly. And he gets a nice jelly mustache. And he calls it his, his mush. His jelly mustache. That's how he likes to eat a sandwich. And so, in order to understand what Mark is presenting us about Jesus, I think we need to eat this jelly sandwich in a similar way. So let's first look at the jelly. Starting in verse 15. So it was the next day, and so they came back into the city, and they go into the temple. And what Jesus has seen, the true king, who's willing to ride towards suffering, he comes into his house, and he is not pleased. What he sees is a, an uproar of chaos. Now, to understand this, think in, in Passover, a, a town that's maybe 70,000 people is now grown to 200,000 people with travelers and, and those who are coming for the feast. So there's triple the amount of people. And also, this is a huge sacrificial moment. And so there's all kinds of animals and there's exchanges happening. And all of that is centered at the temple. All of these people are going right to the temple because they need to, to bring their money that, they've, that the Lord has given them and to buy sacrificial animals rather than drag their animal all across the uh, Israel. So they get there to buy their animals so that they might worship God. To understand what it's like here in the outer court, I think you only have to go as far as the commons in between the first service and Sunday school. And you see the children running around with donuts like sacrificial lambs and coffee being traded and cups going everywhere and it's madness. That's, that's a brief picture of what we have. It's chaos and it's not the good kind. And here's why. Jesus just drives them all out. He upturns all the tables and he gets rid of all of these exchanges of people carrying stuff through the temple and as Jesus typically does, especially in Mark, he, he acts and then he teaches to explain what's happening. And so this is what he says. Look at verse 17. After driving out all of these things, he says, Is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And so what he does is, as the true king with all authority, he goes into his house and he brings judgment on what he sees there. And he does so, and he helps us by taking us back to the Old Testament to understand the environment of what's happening. The first line he, he uses, he quotes from Isaiah 56, which is a beautiful passage. See, in Isaiah 56, Yahweh, through the prophet, is looking to a time when foreigners, when the nations would be welcomed in to the worship of God, when God would be delighted to accept their praise and, and their worship. And they would be welcomed in with, with generous hospitality. And they would find a place because his house is a house of prayer for all the nations. But instead, what is happening is, by their practices, the nations are being kept at arm's length. You see, the pragmatism of being able to buy and sell all these animal, animals and the ease of just putting them all into the outer court started to push out the nations. Because this is how the temple is set up. You have the most holy place in the middle, God's dwelling, his footstool. And then you have the holy place where the ministers or the, the priests would minister. The showbread was there, and that's where they would do a lot of their work. And then you have the outer court, and then the outer court of the Gentiles, this huge complex, which is about a mile in circumference. 
And out in this outer court of the Gentiles where those who feared God and worshipped him but did not belong to the covenant community of Judaism, that's where they went. They were not allowed any further in. And that's where all the buying and selling was taking place. It was a madhouse where the nations were meant to be able to come and worship. There was even an ancient inscription that's been found. Archaeological digs are pretty cool sometimes if you're a nerd like me. There was a, a, an inscription that was found at one point that said something to the effect of, no one who is not of the covenant may cross this boundary. And whoever is found to have done so will have himself to blame for his death. Now, if you come up to worship God and you read that on the door, what does that say to you? I know what it says to me. It says, I'm not welcome here. This is not a place for me. I believe that it, it was, but everything about it screams otherwise. And so we have, I think, to ask ourselves the question, in what way do we live lives with the same kind of inscription pointed at other people? Little children, elementary school children, you know what this is like when you find your really good friends and then people who don't like the same thing as you or maybe don't play the same sport or maybe don't wear the same clothes and you're like, I don't, I don't want to ask them. Middle schoolers and high schoolers know this too. To protect a good thing, to provide ourselves a sense of security, we gather with a group that kind of looks like us and speaks like us and we can maneuver pretty easily with. And to open that up to someone who's not quite fitting in doesn't make any sense, right? And we as adults, we would never, we would never do anything like that, would we? We would never not allow those who don't quite look like us or sing like us or live in the same areas or participate in the same things, come into our fellowship with ease. In what ways do we live lives of barriers where we're not being willing to die to ourselves so that others might participate in a good thing? Jesus wants his house to be a house of prayer for all the nations. And not only that, he's coming and he's looking at the, the leaders and the religious elite of the day. And he's like, you've made this place, rather than a place of worship, a den of robbers. And it's not just because they're exchanging all kind of money and stealing from the people and, and exacting huge taxes and overcharging for all these animals. That's happening. But it's even worse than that. He's alluding to Jeremiah 7 where Jeremiah the prophet is looking, God is looking at the religious leaders of, the, of that day. And he's saying, here's what you do. For them, Sunday through Friday, you live lives of treachery, of theft, of sexual immorality, absolutely gross covenant lives. You forsake the covenant in everything that you say and you do. And then when it comes time for the Sabbath, for the holy day, you come into my temple because you think here you found refuge and you say, here I am safe. And then you go out the very next day and you continue to do all of those abominations. You've made this place a den of robbers. That's what Jeremiah says. Because when robbers are trying to hide out from, from those who are chasing them, they go into caves so that they can hide. And that's how the religious leaders and the elite are treating God's house. They're hiding out in this place. 
so that afterward they can go back out and live the same kinds of lives, not honoring the Lord. And Jesus has had enough. Jesus has come into his house and he says, this is not the way that it was meant to be. This is not working. My house that was meant to be a house for the nations to come and worship and that was meant to be a place that reconciles sinners to God has become a place where sinners just just go further and devolve further into their sin. Everything that's happening here is not bringing restoration and reconciliation. It's not making all the sad things untrue. It's making the sad things worse. So he judges it. Now that we've licked this jelly, sometimes you realize that jelly turns a little moldy. And so is the case with what he finds in the temple. But quickly, I want us to look at the bread very, very quickly. So Jesus, between this this story, he interacts with the disciples around this fig tree. Throughout the scriptures, a fig tree was representative of the people of God. When it was in leaf and fruitful, it was meant to show a picture of blessing and they would invite people, all the nations under their fig tree that they might partake of the covenant blessings of Yahweh. And so when Jesus sees this, fruit, this tree in the distance, he sees a green, lush, healthy, beautiful looking plant. It looks like it's filled with life. And he's hungry. I think he was physically hungry and I think he was spiritually hungry. He was desiring to see that this tree represented the people of God had life in it. And when he comes to the tree, what he sees is that this tree is dead. This tree has no life. Yes, it's filled with green leaves, but it has no fruit, nothing to eat. This fig tree is representative of all that he sees in the city of Jerusalem and in his temple. The place that was meant to bring life to hurting people, the the place that was meant to reconcile sinners to God, the place where God's presence and his grace were mediated by the priests to the people and they they would feast and reconcile relationship was just a place of death and darkness. And so the disciples in a few verses later see that it's withered and dead because Jesus says that's what you were on the inside and so that's what you'll be on the outside. So I want you to see Jesus in this place. Jesus is the humble king who set his eyes on the place of darkness and death so that he might suffer. Psalm 118, they were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the coming of of the kingdom. Blessed is the coming king of our father David, great David's greater son. And a few verses later, we read it. They say, bind the festal sacrifice and take it to the altar. So Jesus, the humble king, goes into his city. He is the festal sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He goes into his temple and with all power and authority, he gets rid of the old system and he reconstitutes it in himself so that all who believe in him are reconciled to God. All who were weary and heavy laden and filled with sorrow and grief can find rest in him because in him we have all that we need. Friends, Jesus is the humble king. And he's also the king with all authority to make the sad things come untrue. Do you believe it? Will you you believe it? 
Will you commit yourselves to this king and live for him? Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word and we thank you, Lord Jesus, that in the fullness of time you came in all humility. You who were rich beyond all all splendor, all for love's sake, became poor. You are the humble king who's willing to ride towards suffering, to endure it even unto death. So that we who are sinners unreconciled to God might be brought near into whole reconciled relationship. And Lord Jesus, you're also the king with authority. You have set forth that you will make all the sad things come untrue. You will make all things new. We live in a tension between joy and sorrow now, and so we ask that you would sustain us as we come to this table. We pray this in your name. Amen.